0: Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, but I guess we're probably ready to be over with that. It's time to put away the decorations, yes, get beyond this, Uh, move away from uh, all the presents and trimmings and, and things and get on with our lives. But this morning I want to talk to us just a little bit about the Christmas spirit. We throw that phrase around a lot this time of year, but what exactly is it? I ran across this quiz, and as a teacher, I couldn't help but decide to give it to you to decide if you have the Christmas spirit or not. Now, I won't give you the whole quiz, just a few questions I think will suffice. Question number one How would you finish the phrase Christmas is? A. A few days off work in winter. B. About giving and receiving. C, a celebration of money, consumerism, and forced revelry between groups of people who detest each other. Or D, a time to be with family and friends. So think deeply about that. You can take out a card and circle your answer on the sheet. Question number two. Your family has asked you to host Christmas dinner this year. Do you A, book a holiday in Thailand? B, invest in a real tree for once and stop by Target for some decorations. C, shop at Whole Foods on the 24th to pick up Christmas dinner. Or D, start trying out recipes in September and prepare your own special holiday feast. Now, the last one is a little bit more difficult and tricky, so please prepare yourselves. Number three, it's complicated. You're traveling to visit relatives by train. Okay, there's no numbers involved here, by the way, so don't worry. Um, Laying down with presents when the two eight year old children sitting opposite you start to sing about the baby Jesus. Do you, A, pause A Wonderful Life on your personal DVD player to think briefly about the magic of late December? B, smile sweetly and offer them a gift from your bag? C, wish you could once again see Christmas through a child's eyes? Or, D, tell them to shut up. Now, if you don't know the right answers to these questions, I think it means that you're somewhat deficient in the Christmas spirit. But I think if, if that's the case, you're probably on par with most of the rest of the world. At least, it seems to me, there have been a dearth of stories these days about the Christmas spirit. Usually around Christmas, you know, we have all these these heartwarming stories about what people have done to illustrate that they truly have the Christmas spirit. Uh, You know, stories about giving and generosity and all that kind of stuff. But in their place, it seems this year that we've had all of these stories of tragedy, highlighting the worst that is in us. And perhaps, of course, the worst and most tragic story was that, that one about the school in Pakistan that was attacked by the Taliban, killing 145 people. 132 of them children. I mean, what sense can we make of stories like this? How do people become so hardened and callous? But, of course, we could say, well, that's just over there. But if you think about it, we've had our own stories here in our own country of violence. There seemed to be this rash of stories of young men, even even children, being killed by police officers. Like, you, you just get over one and there's another story. And then we had that... Horrific assassination of the two New York police officers. And then, and then the scenes of riots and protests, some peaceful but others violent, of tear gas and looting. And then there were even more, more mundane stories. I don't know if you saw this one on the news this past week. There was this story of this uh, young girl who wanted this Christmas present of a Christmas sleigh, and it was out in her yard, and someone came by and stole it. Who does that? What has happened to the Christmas spirit? Do we even know what it is anymore? And for those of you who are fans of the Christmas movie Elf, it is not the belief in Santa Claus that makes his sleigh fly. But the Christmas spirit is rooted in belief. It is based in a belief. A belief in a message that was proclaimed long ago. A message that was carried by an angel to some shepherds that were hanging out in the fields around Bethlehem. A message That is described in Luke's gospel as good news of great joy for all people. Good news of great joy for all people. But I think the good news oftentimes gets hidden among all the noise around us. It's banished, as it were, to that local section of the paper way in the back after the obituaries where no one sees it. And joy is an elusive thing. It's Hard to come by, and it's even harder sometimes to hold on to. So 2,000 years after the first proclamation of that good news of great joy, I think it's worth asking, what exactly is this good news? Has it made any difference? And why don't we see more of it? After all, I think the world can seem like a very dark place at times. And we could all use a little good news, especially as we enter the new year. Of course, the good news that the angel was bringing was about this baby born in a manger. It would have been insignificant at the time. Nobody would have taken notice. But his birth represented the turning point in the storyline of the world. As the prophet Isaiah had said, a people who sat in darkness saw a great light. For that baby represented hope. Hope that things Could be better. Hope that things would be better. Not just in the future, in some far-off, by-and-by lands, but in the ever-present here and now. Hope that the world itself could change. That things could be different. Now, I think oftentimes when we think about the good news and we talk about the gospel, we focus on the death of Jesus, on his crucifixion, and what his dying on the cross means for us. The salvation from uh, our sins and forgiveness and eternal life. And, And that is truly wonderful news. And we don't want to diminish that. But the good news is far more than about a death. It's about a life. It's about true life. It's about a life worth living in this world here and now. You see, Jesus came us, came not only to show us or, or to save us from our sins, but to show us a way to live. Not only to show us a way to the hereafter, but to show us a way to live in this world here and now. Long before he ever went to the cross, he spent years in ministry training his disciples on how to live the way God intended us to live from the very beginning, teaching them, reminding them of a lesson that is long forgotten, a lesson I think that we ourselves need to hear and remember. He expresses it multiple times throughout his ministry and, and, and ex, example, exemplifies it in his life itself, but there's one passage, one verse that I think does encapsulate this and succinctly summarize Luke 9 24. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake he is the one who will save it. Now this text is is not primarily directed to Christian martyrs who are going to give up their life in death uh, for the faith. Nor is it speaking solely about some kind of future life with God although it does have that in mind. But this saying is also a fundamental principle undergirding the Christian life. It's a reminder that if all my efforts are geared towards selfish ends, that I will never achieve true happiness. It is only by releasing control and taking the focus off myself that true life and true joy can be found. The great joy spoken of by the angel. A joy that is not ruled by emotions nor outward circumstances, but a perspective of, on life that can see us through whatever may come. Struggles and tragedies. To use an even more trite but true phrase, Jesus came to teach us that it's more blessed to give than to receive. And this is something I didn't really learn until I became an adult. Think about Christmas, for example. Remember Christmas as a kid? I mean, when when we're children, the world revolves around me. My problems are the most important ones. My struggles the most pressing ones. And Christmas, of course, is all about what I'm going to get and what I will receive. And and I, I measure the success of Christmas by how many presents I got on my list. I could check them off and say, okay, I didn't get that one. Where was that one? But as an adult, when you become a parent especially, Christmas becomes about bringing joy to your kids. It's about making them smile. It's about seeing them light up because of the things that you have given them. And what I discovered was that was just a lot more fun to make someone else happy. It's a lesson that's deeply embedded in the ministry of Jesus. That He didn't come just to die, but He came to show us the way to live and live abundantly. And that this living abundantly has nothing to do with an abundance of things. Jesus came to show us the way to true joy because what he recognized was that the problem of sin is not merely the guilt that it instills within us nor the punishment that it requires, but sin leads us to a fruitless lifestyle that is ultimately unfulfilling. At the root of sin is this intense focus on self, and all we have to do is look back to the story of Genesis to see there how ugly things can get when people are self-consumed. But we don't have to look at Scripture. We have learned this firsthand. When you focus on yourself, life becomes miserable. The more we try to make ourselves happy, the more miserable we become because there's always someone who has more than I do. Have you notice that? There's always someone who's more talented, who's smarter, who's stronger, who has more wealth, more opportunities, more breaks. And if you focus on that, then envy and jealousy will eat you alive. Just think how well it worked out for Cain when he became jealous of Abel. But Jesus came to show us a different path. To think of others before ourselves, to realize that joy occurs in my own life, not from receiving, but from giving, from impacting the lives of others, from making the world a little bit less dark and scary place. To let people know that they're not alone, that we're in this together, that there's someone who has their back. And, and, and to do that requires me at times to sacrifice. It requires me to give up what I need for the sake of others, to give up what I want for the sake of others, and at times to sacrifice to care for others. But often, it requires no more than a kind word and a little patience. You see, I found that the choice to either follow Christ or not follow Christ does not come in these big, bold statements like the early Christians made where they were standing before some Roman authority and were asked to profess their faith or die. That the decision for us is often found in in the small and mundane decisions of life. What do I do with my money? How do I spend my time? And, And for me, oftentimes... It becomes how I view others. Do I look at others with an eye of how I might use them to achieve my own personal goals? Do I divide humanity into two groups, people I can use and people I have no use for? Do I put them into categories such as potential assets and irritating annoyance, or worse yet, simply irrelevant? Or do I see in others beautiful creations of God? Do I look for ways to be a blessing, or do I simply think about how I might be blessed? So as we approach the new year, I would encourage us to intentionally cultivate ways to meaningfully invest ourselves in the lives of others. When we're faced with our own troubles, oftentimes I think we we obsess over it and we focus even more deeply on that. But that's the worst thing that you can do for your own health. The true secret that is here is that when we help others, we're actually helping ourselves. It's freeing for us. It's the way we cultivate true joy. But perhaps more importantly, as we think about our lives when we think about the Christmas spirit, we can define that by recognizing that the Christmas spirit is this glimpse that we get of Jesus in people, when they realize that that life is better lived in gracious generosity than in selfish acquisition. That's the secret. Now, the pessimist would ask, however, is the world not too far gone? Are things not too dark already? And so I want to focus on another part of the good news that we need to hear, and that's that Christ tells us and shows us that change is possible. No matter how much shadow there is in the world, no matter how often we have to fight against the same old enemies, whether they be these personal demons of addictions and unhealthy habits and the guilt that they bring, or we fight against the collective ghosts of our society, racial prejudice and religious sectarianism partisan political strife, or just general hatred and violence. It's important to know that people can change. Now this might seem like wishful thinking, especially when we reflect for just a minute on New Year's resolutions, right? We're all familiar with how these work. You know, this is the time of year when people are, are talking about what changes they're going to make, and they, they make all kinds of promises to themselves about how they will be different in the coming year. Now, the most frequent resolutions, of course, usually are related to losing weight and becoming more physically fit. And so we have these, these uh, gyms in January that are flooded with people. Just wait till February, everything will be fine. But there's other kinds of resolutions. People want to get out of debt, they want to start saving more money, they want to spend more time with their family, they want to stop drinking, they want to stop smoking. And, and as I think about these resolutions that people make, The first thing that strikes me is how sensible they are. They're good resolutions. In fact, they're so sensible that these are the kinds of things we should have been doing all along. The second thing is how difficult it is for us to follow through. In fact, it it does seem that most resolutions do fail by the time February rolls around. In fact, some have done studies and and, and they said that only about 5-10% to of people actually are able to achieve their resolutions. Change, we know, is difficult. It requires persistence and willpower and commitment, all of which sometimes are in short supply. But perhaps more importantly, it requires us to leave our comfortable habits for the unexplored territory of the new and the unfamiliar. And those old paths are just too familiar and too well-trodden. It's just easier to do what we've always done. We don't even have to think about it. Many resolutions fail, I think, because they're spoken with this kind of emotional reaction to something we don't like about ourselves, some change we want to make in our lives. So you might see yourself in the mirror one day and you think, whoo, I'm a little fat. Put on a few too many pounds, maybe ate too many Christmas cookies. And so you decide you're going to diet. But emotions, we know, can be fickle, and so as you're passing by that store window that has the donuts in it, you might say, hmm, I want those too. And you might decide that you want the donuts more than you do want to diet. True change requires a decision that's going to go deeper than that, deeper than emotion, deeper than whim. But change, deep, abiding, change is possible. You see, the entire Christian faith is based on this premise, a belief that we don't have to be trapped by our past, that we can become something different, but what many Christians fail to realize is that it's a process that can transform us but only over time, that it is a lifetime project. Now, think back to the gospel story. The power of the gospel to transform people is illustrated by Jesus' own disciples. Think about this kind of ragtag group of tax collectors and blue-collar workers, fishermen, the most ordinary of folks. And throughout most of the story, they're fairly clueless to what's actually going on. They don't know what Jesus is really about. And in fact, they're consumed by their own dreams, They're wanting Jesus to bring about their kingdom and and to achieve glory for them. They're wanting to be somebody. They're wanting to have positions of power. And they say they're ready to die for Jesus, but in the end, they all slink away and hide. Yet when we see them again in the book of Acts, something has changed. They have become... True servants. They're willing to suffer and die for the sake of others. They stand up and face hardships and persecution. They're willing to face whatever it takes to spread the message of Jesus. They have been transformed. Think of Peter. One minute he pledges never to desert his Lord and his master. And the next time we see him, he's denying that he even knows Jesus. But later in the book of Acts, he faces down the Sanhedrin and he stands up despite their threats and continues to proclaim the message of a risen Lord. What has happened to Peter? What has happened to the disciples? They have found something truly worth living for. We see the same power to change throughout the gospel story. Jesus' ministry is a reclamation project, right? People that had been dismissed as hopeless and useless were treated as valuable and worthwhile, and they changed. He forgives their sin, and then he says, Now, go and sin no more. It's a theme that's immortalized in that classic Christmas story written by Charles Dickens, right? A Christmas carol. Here you have this crotchety old man who is greedy and and all he could think about for most of his life was uh, self-pleasing acquisition of more and more money and more and more stuff. But he's taught the true meaning of Christmas when he realizes the happiest times in his life were not about getting money. It was about when he was with others and when he was making others happy. The good news of great joy is a message of hope that we desperately need to hear, especially when the world seems so evil. People can change. People can be better. We can be better, healthier, happier, agents of true joy. And if you f- reflect on it for just a short while, I would contend that you can find that Christ has already changed you in significant ways. See, we often focus on what we don't like about ourselves and what we think still needs to happen and how we have to get better that we often forget what has already happened. I am different because of Christ. Not perfect. But I'm a better person now than I would have been without Him. And we have countless stories in this congregation of such change. Of addictions that have been conquered. Of marriages that have been saved or restored. Of victories over persistent sin. And we could name names. And you know some of those stories. But there's many others you don't know. To borrow Paul's phrase, not that we have already obtained it, Or I've already reached the goal, but we press on. Someone once said, just when the caterpillar thought the world was over, it became a butterfly. It's an image, I think, that's helpful to realize. Sometimes when we're struggling with life and and things are being thrown at us and everything seems dark, it's a process that we're going through that's transforming us into something more beautiful. Beautiful. The good news of great joy is not about a quick fix. The joy the gospel talks about is not a passing emotional high that is quickly swept away by the vicissitudes of life. It is a deep and abiding perspective about the world and life that is characterized by hope. The hope embodied by that baby in the manger. It's the ability to see the good when darkness is so pervasive. To believe that things can be different, that things will be different. And to continue to see the good in people and even ourselves, even when there is so much evidence to the contrary. The message of the gospel And the joy it speaks of is not about a Savior who comes into the world and then leaves again. It is about a Savior who is come and who lives on in the hearts of those who follow him. It is a call to help God make the world into what it was always intended to be. We're going to sing one more song, but I want to leave you with this prayer. May this next year for you be a time of growth in the midst of pain, joy in the midst of sadness, and hope in the midst of darkness. Let us sing.